listening to the teaching of Doxa Church. Doxa is located in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and our mission is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Second Peter this morning. Now exactly what Peter had predicted in his first letter. First Peter chapter 4 has been now come to pass. Uh, if you recall in our last series, Chosen Sojourners, Peter said there, uh, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as if something strange were happening to you. Fast forward a few years later, where we are here at 2 Peter, which is five to ten years after the first letter, and those circumstances have all come to pass, just like Peter predicted. It's gone from bad to really bad. And just when you couldn't imagine it getting any worse, the capital, Rome, burned to the ground, and the Christians were blamed for it. Now you have the evil, perverted, mentally unstable, bloodthirsty tyrant, Emperor Nero, who most likely started the fire himself, put it on the Christians, and we have political turmoil and tension boiling over. Their economy was starting to collapse. Uh, Their culture was eroding. Their society was just imploding. And all these people who were diverse... Who, who had been pacified for years with bread and circuses, started to turn on each other. People started pointing fingers and blaming anyone who sounded or looked different than them. That was exactly what was going on at the climate of Second Peter. And if that sounds a little familiar to today, I think you're right. I think there are parallels there. We're not to the same degree at all, but we're starting to see some of those same things. So Christians now in 2 Peter are being thrown into the gladiator coliseums. They're, they're getting burned at the stake. And when you put this in our modern day context with where we're at in our country, you can start to see some parallels. Definitely not to the same degree. But as we said when we started 1 Peter, we're headed in the same direction. We aren't getting burned at the stake yet. But if you start talking about Jesus Christ as the only way to salvation, the way, the truth, and the life, you're going to start hearing some mistreatment, and and there are going to be people that hate you for that. So part two of Peter's message to the suffering, persecuted church is right here, and he's building off of the three themes that we just covered in the Chosen Sojourners series of 1 Peter. So there is present suffering. We do have a living hope in Jesus Christ. And there is future glory awaiting all of those who know Jesus Christ. He's he's already addressed that. And now in this letter, just like the name of our series, it's filled with some parting admonitions. An admonition is a mixture of encouragement and warning. It's not, um, it's not a fear-driven reprimand, not at all. 
And it's also not a simple pat on the back, go get them, word of encouragement. It's not either one of those things. In the original sense of the word, an admonition is an authoritative counsel or warning about what you need to remember for what's ahead. And these next three chapters, it's, this book is a lot shorter than his first letter, but the Apostle Peter is writing these parting admonitions, and he's very aware that his days are numbered. In verse 12, he says, Therefore, I intend always to, you, to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. So the church is the outcast or the persecuted minority. Their, their city-state is a complete dumpster fire. And in addition to all of this turmoil there are troubles arising from within the church. And what Peter is doing in these parting admonitions is saying, you're not going to get around this. There's, there's no way to get around this. You're going to actually have to go through this. And this is what you need to know to get through this. So how do you get through this season? And maybe you're in a similar position this morning. You start with the foundation. So look with me at 2 Peter chapter 1. The foundation of the church is where Peter begins. Jesus Christ. And let's read the first 11 verses together. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Jesus, and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire." For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter is writing this letter to strengthen Christians against the various forces and factors that were attempting to shake and rattle the foundation of their faith. Coming up in chapter 2 of this letter, Peter is going to address the false teachers that have crept into the church itself. But something that these Christians right here in 2 Peter have in common with many of us today 
is that they were weary. They're just weary. Now, America hasn't burned to the ground, okay? That hasn't happened yet. And all the blame laid on the Christians. But still, you would have to go pretty far back to find a time when Christians were as ostracized, uh, ridiculed, picked on, attacked in some cases, as, as the true church of Jesus Christ is today. Now, much of that is our own fault, you know, at, at times, and we're going to see some of the things that lead to that. But just as this letter was written to God's people who were besieged with challenges and difficulties, I would say similarly right now, to a degree, we are discouraged. We are confused. There are people who are, who are in a state of worry and doubt and fear about our society and our culture. What, what, what's life going to be like for my kids or my grandkids? And like we talked about the last couple of weeks, if your eyes are off Christ and you're focused on all the headlines out there, you're going to get discouraged. Financially, times are rough. Mental health is at an all-time low, while prescription medication is at an all-time high. I mean, think about how those two things go together for a minute, if you dare. But socially, pressure is mounting. And there are a lot of us, we've lost faith in people that we used to trust. Our leaders, our government. Why are there 87,000 new IRS agents coming after small businesses and auditing the middle, middle class more than ever before? What's that all about? Why are there so many food shortages? And why is there this massive inflation on eggs and bread and hamburgers? I mean, can we blame Putin on all of that? I don't, I don't know. Like, there are, there are things that people are weary and worried about, and it's very easy to get discouraged when you look at what's going on out there. But behind that discouragement, there is a sin. And it's the sin of disbelief. The number one problem that anyone has, including Christians, is the problem of unbelief. And this is why Peter starts off this entire letter with the living hope, Jesus Christ. The world is sinful. Of course it is. It's always been that way. We shouldn't expect anything else. So the answer to our worries and our fears isn't just to hope that people can wake up and start being better. Good luck with that one, right? It also can't be to take it all upon yourself and shout from the rooftops and raise Cain until you get your freedoms back politically. That's not going to work either. The problem must first be addressed from within. The same reason our country is repeating the same patterns of the Roman Empire that fell isn't just because the world is sinful. For us right now, it's because the church in far too many cases has lost its way. The salt has lost its flavor. It's become ineffective, just like Jesus talked about. Paul talked about it this way in, in his letter to the Corinthians. If a trumpet gives an uncertain sound, who can prepare for the battle? If we as God's chosen sojourners are uncertain about our position, if we're shaky on like who we are and our identity in Christ, the sin of unbelief will creep into our minds and the world will look at us and like, why would they be convinced of anything? Why would they want that? 
If all they see is someone who's just trying to do a watered-down version of their lifestyle, why would they be attracted to something like that? The only hope we have is exactly what Peter is hitting on in this letter. It is revival through the movement of the Holy Spirit. And that starts right here in your heart. The only chance we have to turn this ship around, earthly speaking, is through God's grace. And you may be thinking, well, David, why are you talking so much about the earthly kingdom? I'm a citizen of heaven. Didn't we just cover that in 1 Peter? Once you have kids, it starts changing you a little bit. And in our nation is not under God. I don't think it ever really fully has been. We aren't on this earth to preserve America. Of course not. That's not the number one goal. The overall goal is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission, to live for his eternal kingdom. But at the same time, as we've just learned in 1 Peter, we are still stewards of this earth. We still live in communities. We have a country that has historically stood for freedom. So we aren't living for America. We are living for Jesus. But at the same time, we are to love our city. I mean, you, you trace this all the way back to the Old Testament. You had believers who were in these pagan cities and God told them, hey, love the city where you're at. Make it your own. Do your best to be a good neighbor, right? So we have some responsibility there, especially to our kids and our grandkids, to, to leave it better than we found it. The answer is not going to be political, though. So get that out of your mind right now. The solution is Jesus Christ. He's the foundation of the church. And this is exactly where Peter starts to give hope. The battle isn't physical, it's spiritual warfare. History tells us that whenever there is a great awakening, it starts with people being alive and in awe of God's glory. When they see who God is, and then you are, you are contrasting that with who you are, and you're in awe of his grace and mercy in your life, that's when you snap out of apathy and you start doing something. That's the only way to make an eternal impact, to become emboldened and alive in the power of the gospel. So that's the point of this entire letter. There's your series intro right there. You can sum it up this way. Peter is going back to the foundation, and Jesus is everything. This is a letter about strengthening the church of Jesus Christ. Do you catch that in verse 10? He says there, to be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. So that's where he begins, and that's going to be our emphasis today. And this is how Peter breaks it down. First, you must be absolutely certain of what you believe. That's verses one through four. That's where we're going to camp today. Secondly, having done that, you need to supplement your faith and grow in it. And that's verses five through 11. We did read that, but that's going to be next week's sermon. This week is all about knowing what you have in Christ. Knowing who you are in Jesus Christ. We need to know exactly who we are and where we stand, in whom we believe. Because if we don't have that nailed down, our foundation is shaky. And, and you see a lot of people who once claimed to follow Jesus Christ 
wavering on the truth. And they're falling out of a relationship with God. And there's terrible side effects to that. So we are going back to the foundation today. And this is the first point. Know what you have in Christ. Number one, you have obtained a faith of equal standing. Just look at what Peter says there again in his introduction. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, there is a lot of ways that Peter could have introduced himself in his parting admonitions, right? Peter, hand-selected by Jesus to be the leader of the church. I'm coming in here with authority. You better listen to me because I walked with Jesus. I was on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? I have the inside information that you don't have. Do you hear any of that coming out of Peter's mouth? Peter, a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Who's the ours there? It's the rest of the apostles, who Peter's the leader of. So out of, out of the gate, Peter is elevating these people. He's not talking down to them. He's reminding them of who they are in Christ. And today, if you know Jesus as your Savior, you are equal. You are in the exact same position and standing. God looks at you exactly like he looks at every single other person that is a born-again believer. How can that be? You ask, I haven't done all this stuff. I, I don't deserve that. I didn't do as much as Peter. I haven't gone through the same trials as these people here in Second Peter. Maybe you've been pretty apathetic, actually. The first thing Peter reminds you of, and he reminds these scattered Gentile Christians, these former pagans that he's writing to, many of whom are now outcasts from their own families, He's saying the faith that you obtained is the same faith that I and my fellow apostles have all obtained. We have a faith that is for everyone, of equal standing. Every tribe, tongue, and nation, every class, every different people group, no matter who you are today, Jesus came to this earth to die for you and to give you the opportunity to receive his gift to start a relationship with him. For everyone. I love when you look at the book of Acts, I love how you can see Peter learning this, okay? Because Peter, if you remember, he's a fisherman from Galilee, right? So he is from the backwoods of Israel. He is a true Jew, uh, if there ever was a true Jew, right? He had the accent and everything from Galilee. And, uh, and he goes, and, and Peter goes on this journey, even after Jesus Christ ascended back into heaven. In the book of Acts, I mean, he, he preaches the, the, the sermon at Pentecost. The church is exploding in growth. And then God sends him out to Joppa. So he goes to this like Gentile Greek place, like it's totally unfamiliar territory for him, right? There's this, there's this man called Cornelius, a centurion of the Italian cohort, who, who gets a vision from God to go find Peter. And, while, and he's told that Peter is in Joppa staying at Simon the Tanner's house. So what is, what, is that, what is the significance of that? Well, Peter was a true Jew, all right? He never ate anything that was not 
anything that was common. I mean, he had a very strict diet, right? And he's staying at the tanner's house. This is a guy who's a butcher of all these unclean meats. <laughs> and, and Peter is hungry. He has this dream. He goes into this trance, and he three different times, he sees all of these animals that he had never, never had bacon before. Never, never had that. Oh, yeah. Well, and, and he hears from God, rise, kill, and eat. That if you look at chapter 10 of Acts, that entire chapter is God giving this really long ramp where Peter gets out of his comfort zone and he starts learning that this faith, faith in Jesus Christ, is not just for the Jews. It's not just for my homeboys back in Galilee anymore, okay? This is for a whole broad, every tribe, tongue, and nation. And I'll, I'll show you Acts 10.34 when he finally talks to Cornelius there. So Peter opened his mouth and he said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Verse 28 is another great verse where Peter actually re realizes it's clicking in his head. Whoa, this isn't just about me. This is about everyone. The gospel of Jesus Christ cuts out once and for all our artificial human divisions and distinctions. Galatians 3 says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, bond nor free, male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you were Christ, you were heirs according to his promise. Can I get an amen for that? Amen. This is the good news for our day. It's a liberating message in a world of oppression. It's a unifying message in a day of division. But think about this. The very thing that unites us to God and to each other is also the exact same thing that divides us from the world. It's the name of Jesus Christ. Have you ever wondered why some people, maybe it's a Christian athlete or you know, famous Christian, is accepted and well-beloved and others are not? I actually saw a video on this uh, a couple weeks ago and it was contrasting two very famous athletes. You had Steph Curry, the all-world guard for the Golden State Warriors, and, and Tim Tebow. And I'm not here to like bash one person or elevate one other person, but they just took this deep dive into these guys' faith and like, how they talk, how they communicate. And I've heard Steph Curry's testimony. He has a strong profession of faith. Um, but if you contrast you know, how he presents himself and what he says to another person who starts talking about Jesus Christ and not just genuinely speaking God and being a good parent and, and giving off positive vibes. Everybody loves positive vibes, right? But it's a whole lot different when you start talking about Jesus is the only way. And you were a sinner if you, if you were apart from God. That your sin separates you from God. People don't like that as much. And the, and the only difference is you start using the name Jesus and you talk about sin and that Jesus is the answer for sin. Sin is your problem. Jesus is the solution. That's the part that's not popular for people who don't know Jesus. God created this world and it was good. This creation was good, everything about it. You started good, and then the story had some bad news. Adam and Eve fell into sin. Sin cursed 
this entire world. And, and that is why we have so much pain and suffering in the world today. But this story doesn't end with good news and then bad news. There's more good news. God sent his son Jesus into the world to die for our sin, to take our place where we deserved the wrath of God for our sin, separation from a holy God. Jesus paid the price on the cross and then the news gets even better. God accepted his sacrifice. He, gave, he raised Jesus Christ to life. We are now given a new life in Jesus Christ and we will be reunited with God one day. That's the gospel. He rose again and makes all things new. So all of us, just like the original audience of this letter, we start with a problem and it's called separation from God, rebellion against to our creator. Our problem is sin. Once that is dealt with, once you're set right with God, then you can start dealing with all of your other problems. And all the other problems actually look like child's play in comparison to that one, once that's resolved. So the biggest question you have is, are you right with God? You have to begin there. That's where Peter begins. This is why it's so powerful. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of who? What does the verse say? Our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, we often think of obtaining something as earning it. I obtained this super valuable collectible. You know, I traded up, I researched for it, I pulled off a couple really, you know, amazing trades, and I obtained this. Look what I did. Or I worked for years so I could have enough money to buy this muscle car and restore it. Look what I obtained, right? You think of, we think of obtained that way half the time. But that's not actually the biblical word obtained. It specifically means... It has nothing to do with you. The Greek word is lanchano, to receive or have assigned to one. And I just love that before Peter goes anywhere with this letter, he starts out with their legal standing. This is the biblical concept of imputation. God in Christ, at the moment of your conversion, imputes to you the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's how we're all equal. We all behave and think and act differently, right? We're not really all equal in our actions and our behaviors. We don't do the same things. But when God looks at one of his redeemed children, he doesn't see your past. He doesn't see your faults and your failures right now. He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Man, it's amazing. It's his robes for mine. And if you're honest, you know this world is broken. There's something off. We need God. And a lot of people use good works to bridge the gap. That's, that's religion right there. Most earthly man-made religions, all earthly man-made religions are that way. I'm going to bridge the gap by being a good person. Modern humanists try to find this, this good in themselves, which is, you know, it's deep in there. I mean, they're made in the image of God. So yeah, you have a desire for justice because you're made in God's image. That's, that's 100% there. But the difference between Christianity and everything else is salvation is a gift that you could never earn. You actually obtain it from, from God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So 
Think about how the world we live in affects, affects religion. We live in a world of first class and second class, right? It's, it's varsity and junior varsity. You remember when we could fly on planes and it was like a fun experience? Remember, remember those days? <laughs> where, where every flight, every other flight wasn't canceled and you're sweating it out, is my, is my, is my paperwork right? Like, remember those days? And uh, back then, you could, you could fly really easily, and it wasn't even that much extra to fly first class. And I remember walking, I was still a poor college student. I never flew first class, right? Um, but I remember walking on the planes, and like, you see the first class people, they get to board first, right? They're already drinking a drink and you know, sitting there with their legs crossed. And here I am, like, struggling with my extra duffel bag because I couldn't afford the you know, the suitcase, and you're trying to jam your bag into a small container that doesn't fit, and these people are just, ha-ha, first class. <laughs> you're not first class. There, there's the haves and the have-nots. That's the world that we live in. You know, pay your dues to the country club if you want the perks. If you want to live in this neighborhood and have this nice, safe place, well, you better be able to afford the HOA dues, otherwise you're not getting in here, right? You have to earn it, buddy. That's the world. And the world's mindset can easily creep in and corrupt religion. So it turns into the same thing where it's like, oh, look what I have. Look what I earned. Look what I did. Who am I? Ha ha. I'm a good person. You're not. And when that happens with Christians, people who claim to be Christ, it gives everybody a bad taste in their mouth. It's not genuine Christianity. You don't see any of that in this letter. You have an equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God, our Savior, Jesus Christ, 2 Peter 1.1, and that is the good news. The, the problem confronting every man, woman, and child is how to be just with God, how to be right with God. And Peter tells you that that justification is found in Jesus. So that's the first foundational piece that you cannot forget you have to own that truth, let it carry you. You're the same, you're chosen, you're adopted, you're made new. I don't think the same way anymore. I don't live for the same passions and pursuits. You don't fear, you don't worry, you don't get easily offended because you have obtained a faith of equal standing. Here's the second point, number two. Grow in the knowledge of Christ. Look again with me at verses two and three. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Like I said earlier, you know, next week we're, we're, we're going to get into the whole growing in your faith part. And there's actually a list of you know, elements that you need to supplement to your faith and grow stronger. It's going to be very practical. But right here, we're getting a teaser of that. And it's, it's another part of knowing who you are, what you have in Christ. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, to the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So the deeper you know Christ, the more you realize that you have all you need in him and him alone, the more bold and the more free you are going to be. Notice that it says all things that pertain to life and godliness. And, and as I've already mentioned, you know, the church is recovering 
We're at a place right now where we're recovering from man-made religion. When religion is centered on man rather than Christ, it makes up a lot of rules. A lot of inconsistent, ridiculous rules that no one can follow them all. And it becomes more about not messing up and dotting all your I's and crossing all your T's than it does about just loving God and loving others, right? And when that happens, you get to a place where you separate your life on Sunday, your spiritual life, with the rest of your life. Have you ever seen that? Have you ever been there before? This is very common, very common. You know, we're not going to, on Sunday morning, we're not going to talk about what we did on Saturday night. Because you can't talk about what happened on Saturday on Sunday. Just won't, won't fly. See the inconsistency in that? Does that sound biblical to you? Like, aren't we supposed to be the same person today as we are going to be at, at our job tomorrow morning, on Monday morning? The church in America has had a problem with this. And, and one of the effects of this duplicit lifestyle is, you know, you start being fake <laughs> and you have to pretend and you have to perform. No wonder people get fed up with religion and don't want, don't want anything to do with the church. Once you start learning who you are in Christ, the biblical way to live is, is the same. It's consistent. You're the same person today as you will be tomorrow. You don't pretend that you don't know the lyrics to that song. Or hide what shows you watch on TV because, look, my spiritual life, my relationship with Jesus has transformed the way I think and the way I, I live my life seven days a week. And because Jesus is life, he's changing your life to become more like his and you start to sound more like him in how you talk and how you act. So I say all that to say, why does Peter split this up? All that pertains to life and godliness. You could take it the wrong way, right? I have my life and I have godliness. We have the spiritual and we have the rest of life. That's a false dichotomy. Like that's not what Peter is actually saying, even though we can almost read that into it. Peter is not splitting up your spiritual life with the rest of your life because that would be inconsistent with the rest of the New Testament. What he actually means here is greater knowledge of your faith in Christ informs how you look at life, as in creation, the cosmos, everything, the way you look at the lost people, the way you look at science, the way you interact with your kids, like the big broad brushstroke of life, not just your personal life, but creation and godliness. Okay, so by his divine power, he's given us everything we need to know about the world system that we find ourselves in and our own spiritual journey. Do you see those two things? Does that make more sense? So when the government becomes more untrustworthy, you don't cripple into fear because you know Christ is your king and God holds you in the palm of his hand. When your job is not fair and your boss is a dishonest jerk, you can still have peace in that storm too because you have a promise, God will provide my needs. And as bad as this gets, it won't last. Remember that from last week? Pain is temporary. It's a seasonal thing. Jesus is our living hope and he's preparing us for a future glory. A lot of times we can fall and slip into this mindset that is antithetical to where Peter would have us think. 
we think I have to compartmentalize all this stuff. I have to go to this resource for this knowledge and I have to go here for this expertise. And of course, to some degree, that's true. But the Bible gives you everything you need for life. It contains the framework for how we, how we work out the scientific method. I mean, it's not a science textbook, but it teaches us what we need to know about the, the foundation and the grid of, of pursuing and exploring. And I have a hypothesis and let me test this out with repeated experiments because I'm supposed to subdue the earth and have dominion over creation. And I'm a creator made in God's image. God is a creator and he made me the same way. All of these things, all of these big components, the building blocks of life are right here foundationally in God's word because God's revealed that to us. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. You don't really need anyone but Jesus Christ. Your relationship with Jesus Christ is paramount. A lot of people, even Christians who are sitting in church on Sunday morning, don't think that way. And you may even think, I mean, I know better. I, I can figure this out. I can do this on my own. I can chase and pursue my own dream. What you're really doing there is deceiving yourself and becoming unwise when you have that mindset. There, if there's something wrong with a building, you have to examine the foundation, right? And when we started this renovation, this little addition in our house, they poured the foundation back in May, okay? And it's still not done yet. It's still not done yet. I can't, one of these days, we'll be able to have people in our home again. Uh, but, you know, they, they said, hey, the foundation has to sit for a few weeks before we build anything on it. I understood that then. I, I definitely understood that. <laughs> But this foundational piece is the secret to grace and peace being multiplied to you. See that in verse 2? Look at it one more time. Verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. The, res the result of knowing Jesus is always grace and peace. And we are going to hit this second angle next week of the practical things that you do, to your, do yourself to supplement your faith, verses five and six. But this foundationally is what has been done for us. Before he exhorts us to add virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness, he reminds us again of what we have in Christ. This is what's already been done for you. He's granted us all things through knowing Jesus. He's multiplied grace and peace. Now, if anyone remembers like eighth grade science class, you will remember something called a aftershock, excuse me, a foreshock. Aftershock is like the tremors after the earthquake, right? I had to look this up myself because I couldn't remember. So <laughs> there you go. But a foreshock, I knew, I knew there was a name and it's foreshock. Those are the rumblings that happen before the earthquake happens. And honestly, most people don't feel the foreshock. Most of the time they go completely undetected and then just the earthquake hits. But the foreshocks are always there. Just like the tremors are gonna be there after the earthquake. So Peter is writing again to the church who's literally in the middle of the earthquake, right? We're right now in the, we're in the foreshock period. 
only the people who were really rooted and grounded, you know, the salt of the earth people, got their got our ear to the ground. We're, you know, you're 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 paying attention. You can you can feel the foreshocks that are coming. But if but if you're just head in the clouds, living my life, pursuing my dreams, having fun, you're not going to feel the foreshocks that, that, that tell you the earthquake is coming. We're in a day where only the people who are based and rooted in truth can feel that coming. But when times get tense, what happens? People usually get, they tighten up, right? They white-knuckle it. We need more grace and peace right now. That's what we need. Our world is unsettled. And as the pressures mount, people get tight. People get angry. People get tense. They get nervous. They get anxious. If Christ is out of the picture, what goes along right along with that? People get less gracious, right? They get way less gracious. I was listening to a podcast, and it was a couple former New Yorkers, two people who had left New York, and they were actually talking about how much they love the city of New York and how much it's changed. Like, New York used to be full of people who were like, yeah, we're going to do it our way and live our life, and now it's just full of people who, who are like, please tell me what to do. I am a robot. I trust you. I need you to make my decisions for me. And it's just like it's not even the same city. It's like the city has lost its spirit. And I could go on and on about that, but that just summarizing what they were talking about. And, and again, right along with that, these people are just complying. They can't make their own decisions. And they're also jerks. <laughs> and they're also nasty to everyone else. They're easily offended. There's no grace there. When you see who you are in Christ and what he's done for you, you can sense the foreshot coming all the more reason to be more gracious, to, to cut people some slack and to know, hey, they, they don't know Jesus probably and they're worried. I can help this person out by showing them the grace of God. Be sympathetic, be helpful. Remember who you were apart from Christ. Show grace. Now, the emphasis of this whole first section here is on knowledge. It's in verse 2. It's in verse 3. When you know Christ, when you know him, you begin to change. When you know what he's done for you, you become fearless. When you know who you are, you're adopted, you're accepted in the beloved, you become bold. When you know deep down that you can't fall and that God sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ when he looks at you, you don't stay discouraged anymore. Unbelief in any of that is what trips you up and gets your head down. This is why I always say spiritual warfare is a battle for truth in your mind. So when we get this way where we start to be gracious, we start to be bold, we start to be free, we, we don't worry the same way everyone else is, we're not uptight like everyone else is, that's when the world really starts to notice, wow, I can't shake this guy. What gives? He has something I don't have. And then you're standing on a platform with a megaphone and you can share the reason for the hope that is in you when all of those things start playing out that way. 
the world is full of conceit, condemnation, and pride. It's dominated by its own wretchedness, and it suffocates from a lack of joy. It's striving for peace because it doesn't have Christ. Be different. Be the person who is full of grace. To do that, you must grow in the knowledge of Christ. That's foundation number two of who you are. The last one this morning, number three, number three is become a partaker of the divine nature. This is verse four. So the foundation of living in the four shocks is the same as these Christians who were living in the earthquake. It's the same thing. You obtain a gift of equal standing. You were given grace to know your creator and your sustainer on a deeper level. Here's the last piece now. You become like him. Look at verse four one more time. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. This right here is the definition of a Christian. You could write that down. I mean, this is the definition of a Christian. What is it that a Christian should desire above everything else? Is it to have deep spiritual encounters? I love those. Those are great. It's not the number one goal. Is it that I may be better than I used to be? I talk to a lot of people that way that, that, that have their religion, that that's, that's the way they look at their religion. I shaped them all my life, and I'm a good dad now. I'm a good father now. I got away from that horrible, corrupt neighborhood and, and, and family patterns. Well, great, but it's, it's all on you, and it's limited. It's not to be wiser and smarter than everyone else because I get it and I have the truth. You poor, foolish person, you don't get it like I do. I have the knowledge. Again, really bad side effects with that. You start to be a person who repels people from the church when you, do, when you think that way. Those are not the goal. The supreme objective of the Christian is right here in verse 4. It's to know him and become like him. Know Jesus, and as you grow in your knowledge and grace and peace is multiplied to you, you start becoming more like Jesus. And I love talking with the people in this room who are like, I can't believe who I am. You know, I look back at my old life as a different guy. I, I, I was completely different. This is who I am now, and it's all because of Jesus. I don't think the same way. I don't worry the same way. I don't, I don't jip people off and, and do anything to make a buck. And That's not who I am anymore. Verse 4 is the definition of a Christian. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Glorifying God only happens when we know him and we are changed to become like him. God's glory is everything that is true about him. Every aspect of God's being in presence, in character, every single one of those things, that's his glory. And to glorify God means that you show the world a truth about God. So when you are gracious, guess what? You're showing God's grace and you're showing his glory. You're glorifying God. And on down the list, it goes. Those are the things that we bring into this world. 
when we become like Christ. This culminates at your glorification when you see him face to face. We glorify God when we live our lives as a reflection for his glory. And that's where our church gets its name. The word doxa is the Greek word glory. As a child of God, you were given a promise in verse 4 right here. That over time, day in, day out, as you grow in your relationship with him, you're on a journey to a divine nature. Does that sound too crazy to be true? Really? Divine nature? Sounds not like me. <laughs> I still get mad when things don't go my way. And uh, I'm still really selfish. Like, how, how am I going to get this divine nature? If faith was all up to you, then of course you would never get there, right? Of course not. People make rules to try to get to God. They try to be better on their own. And as Peter has already pointed out, you can't do that. You didn't earn this. You obtained this. It was a gift. This is real Christianity. And once you own this and you treasure this and you remember this in your thoughts and your actions day in, day out, there's no room for comparison. There's no room for apathy. There's no room for self at all. We have a faith that says we are hopeless in and of ourselves, but we have a living hope, and his name is Jesus Christ. He set me free from the bondage of sin, and now I can partake of a divine nature, which is a promise that still blows me away. So I have two questions for you as we close this message. We have a lot more to come in 2 Peter. But this is the foundation. Know Jesus and become like Jesus. That solves your number one problem, with his, which is separation from God. And that makes all the rest of your problems, I'm not trying to be offensive here, they all look trivial in comparison to that problem that's solved. Once that problem is solved, yeah, you're going to have more suffering in this present life. Of course you are. What is it going to be next, right? Just what is it, what's the next thing going to be? But those things don't matter because of who you are in Christ. You're not in the same rat race, playing the same game. You are spiritually in Christ. You're above it all. That's the first question. Do you know Jesus? As we close the message today, we're going to have a time of communion and this is for people who know Jesus Christ. The way you obtain the free gift of salvation is you receive it. It's all you do. You have, you, you have to accept the gift and open it up to obtain the gift. By confessing your sin and turning from your old ways and looking to the cross of Jesus Christ and saying, God, thank you for sending Jesus to die in my place. I accept his righteousness. That's faith. Something that you cannot see, but it is a belief that wipes away the unbelief. If you haven't done that, please do that right now. You don't need, you don't need to stand up. You don't need to do anything. You can right now 
cry out to God, I am a sinner, please save me. I believe that Jesus died for my sin. That's how you get to know Jesus. Second question, is your focus on becoming more like Jesus? Is that your focus? That's what I want you to talk about as we prepare our hearts for communion. Because it's way too easy to let unbelief in these three truths that we just talked about creep in. The world is a mess. As Christians, we're not of the world. We're sent into the world. But if we try to juggle the same things that the world juggles, I got to be happy. I, I, I got to do what makes me feel good. I, I have to seek success in sports or academics, find status in career or achievements. We start looking and sounding and feeling just like the world who doesn't know Jesus. This is all about getting back to the foundation. If there's something wrong with the stream, you got to look back to the source. So what's flowing out of your heart? Is your focus on becoming more like Jesus Christ? Thanks for listening to this message from God's Word. If you have any questions about the topic of this sermon, or if you would like someone to follow up with you about applying this to your life, please reach out to us at info at doxaupstate.church. You are loved.